You're listening to the Fringe Legal Podcast. This is the show for lawyers and law firm leaders. I'm your host, Ab. In each episode, I talk with technologists, key players, and experts to help you navigate the changing landscape that is the legal profession. If you're looking for strategies, learn about trending topics, get updates from the experts, then this is the place for you. Let's get to it. Before we go into the episode, I want to thank everyone who's listened to the show so far. It's been very humbling to see the responses and hear the feedback. Please keep it coming. Second, if you haven't already, please do share the podcast as well as like and subscribe on your platform of choice. It makes a big difference in helping others discover the show and in driving the conversations deeper. Lastly, I wanted to mention that this is a very special episode. This was the first episode that I recorded. It was actually the first in-person episode that was recorded. And as a result, you'll notice that the audio maybe isn't what you were used to. Please stick with it as the content is great. I also wanted to give a special shout out to Nikki for taking the chance on the show and for being the very first guest on the Fringe Legal Podcast. Without further ado, let's get into it. Nikki, thanks for joining me today for the recording of this podcast. We're live here in Soho in New York. So yeah, thank you. You're one of the first few guests to actually appear on this podcast. And we spoke at Ilton. I think obviously we've spoken previously and you have an interesting background. For one, you're new to New York. So during this podcast, I wanted to touch on a couple of things. How did you end up actually in New York and what, what's your story into law and legal? Thanks, Evan. Thank you for having me on your podcast. I'm very excited and honored to be one of your first guests. (laughs) Yes, I have a slightly unusual background, I suppose, in that I actually studied law and started practicing law in Sydney, Australia. Mm -hmm. And I worked there as a lawyer for nine years or so before moving to Canada. Okay. And when I got to Canada, I moved into the knowledge management side of law and worked in a number of different firms there. Mm. And most recently was the director of knowledge management at a firm called Stegman Elliott. Yeah. And I've now moved to New York to work in a global role also as director of knowledge Mm -hmm. management with Paul Hastings. So for me, it was been a little bit of an unusual journey that has allowed me to see into the way that law firms work in three different countries. So that has been quite interesting. Yeah, that's quite a that's quite a story. What was the move like from Australia to to Canada? That was surprisingly easy because I actually have nationalities from both of those countries. Yeah. In fact, I would probably say that the move from Canada from Toronto to New York has been really in some ways more of a transition, even though it's one hour's flight away. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. They don't make it easy to move here. The visa process they was definitely don't, a tangle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they definitely don't. And what was the, I suppose it's probably quite a big culture shift as well, right? From Sydney to Toronto to New York, and New York for sure, as someone who's moved here and who's been here for a year and a half. I know there's a massive, there's nothing like it, as I say. Yeah. So how's that been for you? It's been interesting. Canada, I found... You know, and people are very welcoming and mm. very friendly. You know, the stereotypes you <laughs> yeah, hear about yeah. Canada are true. <laughs> Everyone's really nice. New York is such a huge city and there's so much going on. It's fun and it's exciting. I can immediately see that our friendship group here, I think, will be made up of mainly international people. Really? I, yeah, because so many people here come from not here. Yeah. Which is something that I actually <laughs> love about it. Yeah. But probably the, the actual, like, true New Yorkers, mm. I don't know... 
I think we'll end up making friends mainly with international people. Right. So. And how long have you been here now? Only two months. <laughs> <laughs> Only two months. And I'm how much? Of, new. How much of that two months have you actually spent in New York? Oh yeah, all of yeah. it. Oh wow, all of it. That's surprising. Well, yeah, we live in Brooklyn, mm. but I work in Manhattan, so yeah. that's a nice for me. That's a really nice combination. To yeah, have those two. that's cool. The reason I ask everyone else I know who's moved to New York, Has as soon as travel? they move to New York, they start traveling. Right, and including me. When I, I think when I got here in the first year of being here, I probably traveled. I don't know, three months out of the year oh, internationally, wow. which was crazy. And most of it was back to the UK. You know what, though, Ab? That's because you have a really cool, like, vendor job. And I work in a law firm. <laughs> no. Although I did get back from Toronto a day ago. So, there you go. Yeah, yeah. There you go. And you were at ILTA, so you traveled. I was at ILTA. So. I was in DC. That's yeah. true, actually. I had forgotten that. Yeah. Okay, awesome. So tell me a bit more about what motivated you to move into knowledge, or was it just an accidental move or something? It was, in fairness, it was initially slightly accidental yeah. <laughs> because Canada makes it quite hard to requalify as a lawyer and it was going to take a long time and I have young kids and I had to get a job and I got a contract position in KM but what I discovered very very quickly is that I love it yeah I love KM in the modern way that it has evolved okay. you know where where you're seeing KM departments that include innovation mm. so I mean I think in some firms it's now just called innovation but for me KM is really where we do a lot of the tracking legal tech developments yeah. and identifying what exciting new tools are on the market mm. that really could work for our lawyers mm. and help the law firm provide the best possible service to the client. So that to me is a really exciting, interesting space to be in, especially yeah. as you see law and the practice of law change. Yeah. I feel like we're at this kind of forefront of of technology in a way. I, someone once described it to me as the digital revolution leapt over law when it initially happened because lawyers sure. are so incredibly resistant to change. Mm -hmm. And now, years later, we're seeing that happen in the legal space. Yeah. And so to me, it, it kind of feels like we're in Silicon Valley, <laughs> you know, <laughs> 15 years ago, yeah. but actually, you know, we're in How York. does that relate to you? As someone who practiced, thinking back actually to your practicing days, do you think you were one of those lawyers who were resistant to change and now you're sort of almost the tables have turned and now you're trying to convince the lawyers to, I suppose, adopt new technologies and new ways of working or anything similar to That's that? such an interesting question. I've seen a couple of tools recently that have made me think. I would go back to practice really? if I could use this all of these products together. I mean, that's yeah. what a difference it makes. Wow. All of the pain points that I used to... I was a litigator. So all of the pain points I used to feel as a litigator, mm. people have solutions for those yeah. now that would actually allow you to do the fun part of yeah. law, like the intellectual, actual, rigorous, yeah. bespoke work for tedious, clients rather than yeah. the tedious, yeah. really annoying timekeeping <laughs> and, you know, the... Yeah trying to organize all of this stuff and yeah. you know someone people are thinking about those yeah. things now do you think that's what it is just actually using technologies and it doesn't have to be technologies actually and as i think we'll talk about in a bit but more processes and using design and things like that to take all the boring parts because i think one of my co-workers often tells me you know practicing law 
you kind of go into it with a vision that you're going to be doing all this strategic thinking. You're going right. to be, you know, you are plucking some of the smartest people from a class and getting them to do sometimes pretty mundane, boring tasks. And the, that stuff never really ends. The more, even if you progress in your career, right? right? Do you think it's more about removing that, or is the fundamental practice of law that's changing, or both? I think it's probably both. Mm. The latter, I do think the fundamental practice of law is changing because I think increasingly lawyers are being called on to do more than traditionally they once were. Mm. Now we're being asked to also be business partners, like understand your client, actually understand your client's business. Think about other ways you can alleviate some of what they go through on a regular basis and partner with them, you know, whereas I don't think that I don't think partners I used to work with were really thinking along those lines. Hmm. But then, yes, I mean, from a process perspective, I think a lot of what's happening is not necessarily the boring bits, but the things where it just doesn't make sense to use those big brains on (laughs) these things that are highly, highly repetitive and where actually because it's repetitive, they're prone to error. Yeah. You know, even it doesn't matter how clever you are. If you yeah. are working until three o'clock in the morning every night mm. and you're reading documents and that's, you know, the last review that you do or yeah. like that isn't, that's not an idea. It's like doctors working yeah. all through the night, yeah. you know, exactly. you're, you're prone to making mistakes or just missing something. Right. Exactly. I mean, and I actually remember a partner saying to me once when I was working really long hours as a litigator, mm. he pulled me aside and he said, you know, no one is ever going to remember that you were here until three <laughs> o'clock in the morning. Yeah. But if you make an error, they will remember that forever. Yeah. So I think the tools that are coming along now are actually preventing that sort yeah. of mistake and allow and supporting lawyers yeah. better. Yeah. And I think that that's a big part now of, of the shift I see. There's a lawyer in, in New Zealand I know who speaks a lot about this actually at the increasing rate of depression amongst lawyers. And it's just because you know, the longer you work, I think the first couple of years, maybe you can just put up with it and you hope for the best, right? And you do need to put in the hours. It, it is a, I think even if you take all of the tedious stuff out, it is a tough job. There are a lot of skills and a lot of moving parts that you have to juggle. Over time, it needs to plateau and, you know, you need to reduce the amount of stress and you just boost the morale in some way. And I think that is shifting. And I, I think that's evident in sort of younger people coming into the legal profession as well, right? Yeah. So how how do you think all of that relates to your role as a KM or the KM role, right? I, how do you see how do you see that role having an impact on either the process part of it, the design part of it, or something else? How do you think that that intertwines? I mean, I think that is what I see our role as being. Mm. We are there to support the lawyers and ensure that they are able to practice at their best, whatever that means, whether that is by identifying areas for process improvement, Mm. identifying technologies that will support them and alleviate some of their stress and enable them to practice better, ensuring that there is content available to them that they can find quickly when they need it in the moment of the matter when they need it, helping them understand project management skills, which Mm. we were never taught as lawyers, (laughs) so that when they're running matters, they can do it efficiently and effectively and so that there are fewer write-downs, you know, like there, there are all kinds of ways that we can support a lawyer's practice and I think that's really what our job is. Awesome. And I think 
so one of the things that I got really excited about when we spoke in DC was learning that oh my god, there's somebody else who actually knows well design thinking and right. who's you know who's quite knowledgeable about that. So I think that's kind of what I wanted to focus on for the last part during this interview. So I, I suppose we set the baseline. Would you mind assuming I don't know anything about design <laughs> thinking, which which is probably not that far from the truth? Would you mind just going into what that means, maybe sure. from your perspective? So design thinking is essentially a human-centered form of problem solving. Mm -hmm. It's like a structured brainstorm that has at its very core empathy. Okay. So what you're doing is rather than just solving a problem without understanding exactly how the person for whom you're solving feels, mm -hmm. your first port of call is exactly how that person is feeling. Okay. One of the things that I that really impressed me when I first learned about design thinking mm -hmm. is that I think in KM and probably in a, in a lot of supporting roles in law firms, yeah. we go straight to problem solving right away sure. and straight to the solution without yeah. really thinking about what is the actual problem. Mm. A lot of the times I say to a lot of the people I work with, have you gone and actually asked your lawyers why they're having this problem or mm. how they're feeling about it or how they are experiencing it. If you jump in and you try to get to a solution point before you've explored the problem sufficiently right. and understood why the people you are solving for have that problem, mm. you may be solving the wrong problem yeah. or you may be solving the problem in a way that actually doesn't work for the people that you're mm. solving for. And design thinking allows you to do all of that much better. Because you're coming at it from, I suppose, understanding the problem perspective rather than just attacking it. Right. right. You're not just so, focusing on throwing bodies at the thing. Exactly. So, I mean, it, this is it's something that's been around for years, decades. Right. There are very clearly defined steps in design thinking. So it's, again, people talk about brainstorming, but you can throw people in a room and say, okay, brainstorm, go. Mm. They won't come up with a lot of ideas. Right. This is much more structured. And the first step is to empathize. Okay. The second step is to actually define the problem. Right. Then, only then do you go to the point where you are ideating, coming up with ideas, brainstorming. Okay. And here, often design thinking will involve a process whereby people are put under pressure to come up with more ideas than they okay. normally would allow themselves to okay. get to. So it pushes you past your sort of natural inhibitions mm. and barriers to creativity. Okay. And then you actually come up with a prototype. So the whole entrepreneurial fail fast. Right. Design thinking is about that. And, you know, all kinds of major companies use yeah. design thinking. That's, right. You know, we are, we again, laws, <laughs> we are slow to right. come at this. <laughs> so you, many other things. You come up with a prototype on the fly, right there, using whatever you have available mm. to you. And then you show it to people and explain it. And then you adjust for okay. You know the weaknesses that have come out. Okay, and that's the testing phase of it, right? Because that's, that's the, the big testing part of it. phase, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Okay, cool. And then, I mean, is there an end goal to design thinking? Is the idea to try and go out and do something, or is it more of a thought exercise? So, I mean, for me, using this in law firms, for example, mm -hmm. which is where I have used it, right? I think you cannot leave it there. <laughs> There's no right. reason ever in a law firm to do something if it doesn't bring some kind of value. Yeah, so, so I think, I mean, there are a number of things. First of all, you have to have a problem mm -hmm. that people 
want to solve and are interested in solving. Right. And you actually have to allow people to think about that in an, in an environment where they let themselves be creative, which is difficult for lawyers. Yes. I think lawyers <laughs> tend to be rather rigid and resistant to that kind of thing, especially when they get in a room and you're being asked to draw, for example, right. or, you know, that's not something that is usually part mm. of their bailiwick. And I mean, there's, I think, I don't know why, but I know from experience, there's some stigma attached to even using the word sort of creativity exactly. in such a way. And maybe we can get onto that in a minute. But yeah, I think it'll be interesting to understand how you've seen that aspect alone be overcome, right? Because right. as you said, if you put lawyers in a room and you know start talking about drawing things or mm-hmm. being creative or let's, let's you know have a brainstorm or whatever word we use, I can already see people sort of crossing their arms and right. getting defensive about that. Oh, they that. do, they yeah. do. <laughs> well, just briefly to come back to what you said before around value. Yeah. For me, one of the key things is that after you finish a design thinking workshop mm-hmm. with any group of people at your firm, whether it is lawyers or other people because it doesn't you don't have to start with your lawyers sure for me the key is to go around and pick up all of the paper that people generate they generate a lot of written stuff when they're doing this and prototypes yeah and look through it afterwards and what i have seen every time i've done this is that themes emerge okay and so you identify those themes you go Mm. back to the people who participated you tell them these are the themes that emerged sure. when you were problem solving. Yeah. And then you take a few of those ideas and you actually implement them. Okay. And that is how people understand that there is value to this. Right. And I think what this does is a, a few things that are highly, highly valuable in mm. today's legal environment. One is in order to do what we do, which is help lawyers try to adjust for the change that is coming and right. is happening in terms of adopting technology mm-hmm. and changing their process and so on. You have to have a culture in the firm where people are open to innovation and open to change. Mm -hmm. And design thinking actually allows you to create that kind of openness Mm -hmm. and starts to instill a culture that is open to innovation. And one of the reasons for that is because if you come up with something at the end and you implement the idea, all of those people in the room were part of coming up with the idea. So they are far more likely to adopt the change they were part of creating it. Yeah. And I think especially, you know, even if you take the ego bit out of it, I think everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people want to feel like they contributed, right? Whether it's something that affects them directly or that indirectly has a benefit for the firm, where they work, where they spend so many hours of their life every single day. Right. Um, Okay. So let me just recap the stages of design thinking. So is it supposed to be, and before I did actually, so is it supposed to be a cyclical process, much like prototyping anything else that you're supposed to read, basically yeah, go through over and over again until you come to a something you want to take away to the next step? Yes, exactly. Okay. It's iterative. So awesome. you would go back to the prior steps and mm. redo them and redo them until you refine your solution and it's something that works and that you're excited about. Okay. So the way I had design thinking explained to me was... I think pretty much that, but it was even at a higher level because I knew nothing. I still probably don't. Was to the, the initial step was you know getting an understanding. So that's where the empathy and I suppose defining the problem, if I can call it that, comes in. Mm-hmm. Going into exploring. So that's exploring the solutions. Mm-hmm. So that's the 
ideating stage and working through prototyping it mm-hmm. onto the final stage of the cycle, I suppose, it's never the final stage, which is around materializing a solution, right? So you're testing it, you're getting feedback, and then eventually, whether it's through the scraps of paper you pick up or, or some other means, you're actually implementing and putting something into effect. Right. Do you think that's a good good enough summary? Did I miss anything? Yeah, no, I think that's good. I think that it does cover all of the yeah. steps. And I've seen many diagrams about this, so yeah. <laughs> I think when I do post show notes about this, I'll include at least one or two. Okay, and do you think this is one of those things where people have law firms or lawyers or anybody else in a law firm would have likely experienced this in some way if it's been around for a while, but maybe not have a name attached to it? Or do you think this is a novel concept for a lot of law firms? I think it's pretty novel. And I think people are quite resistant to it. And I don't just mean the lawyers. Mm. It, I mean, it has an actual design, right. you know, like, like Apple, for example. Yeah. You know, it has been around for a long time. Mm. But in terms of process solutions and that kind of thing. Right. I don't know that in law it has been commonly used. Certainly mm. not in my experience in right. Canada or in New York. How did you get exposed to it in the first place? I, I went to a conference okay. probably about three years ago now and someone spoke and it was quite a short talk. It was probably half an hour. Okay. She had so much energy and I <laughs> and I and she was so engaging and it was the one it was a legal technology conference. Mm. And what she was talking about was all process, no right. technology. Okay. And I'm usually like a huge tech geek when it comes <laughs> right, to right. I love legal tech. <laughs> and I know I'm such a nerd. But I was blown away and I and I went back to our firm and I said, you know, we should do this. This wow. is all about getting an innovation mindset. Mm. And that's what we needed to do with our lawyers. Right, right. Do you remember who that was? Who spoke? It was Sarah Prevett okay. from Future Design School. Okay. Maybe maybe I'll get in touch with her. And, and they, they <laughs> sit they sit within Mars. Oh yeah. Yeah. Incubator. Yeah, yeah. So oh, cool. Awesome. And then so you went back to your firm and you said, Okay, let's do this and they were like, Of course, Nikki, whatever you whatever it takes, let's get this. <laughs> it took done. a little while. <laughs> it took a little while. I think it probably took Maybe it was a year and a half after that. Mm, just and a while. Yeah, just a little while. But I mean, in fairness, I think, you know, the people I worked with were quite open to mm. it. And it was about how how are we going to do this in a way that management of the, like our, you know, that management won't shun right, right. away. Cool. And so, I mean, my advice to people would be, and now that I'm in a new firm, I'm experiencing that all over again, <laughs> right? All the, yeah, right? All the I, I really yeah. think this is going to be rather common. And I'm sure that a lot of people who listen to this podcast will also think, okay, well, that's well and good for you, Nikki, sure. but you don't know my firm. <laughs> my lawyers just will simply not do this. Right. And so what we did actually, initially we got Future Design School in to do a talk and a miniature workshop okay. at a KM retreat that we right. had. Or a KM meeting, I should say. So we started with an external consultant, a yeah. facilitator, and a small group of people mm. who were open to this kind of thing right. anyway, because of the industry we worked in. That went really well. And we invited a number of the other business services directors, sure. administrative directors, to hear the talk. Ah, okay. And that sparked some interest. Mm. People thought she was great. And then after that, we started doing our own workshops mm. internally. And again, our second step was to do it with business services directors and managers right. solving a problem that was highly relevant to them that was around how we could better organize and run cross-functional projects, which was really beneficial to people. And then we went to the lawyers. And I mean, my other piece of advice for people would be 
in the end, don't underestimate them. Yeah. Because we ended up getting 80 people, 80 lawyers wow. in a room, including, you know, our managing partners. And obviously having partner buy-in at the very yeah. top makes a difference because then you get a lot of more associates in the room. <laughs> Absolutely. But it was a two-hour workshop and they stayed for the entire thing. That's incredible. So what do you think it was that got them in the room in the first place? What, what did you, if you remember, what did you have to tell them? What was the invitation? It was part of an ongoing innovation engagement series right. that we were running at the firm mm. to build this culture of innovation. Sure. So, And we'd ha held, I think, two previous events. And so we had a little bit of traction and momentum mm -hmm. going with things where we offered drinks and food. <laughs> sure, that always helps. <laughs> and then sure. got people to talk about quite interesting yeah, yeah. things. Yeah. And then, as I said, we had we had partner buy-in at the very top. So yeah. we had, you know, the managing partners actually send the emails inviting yeah. people, which again, always helps. But once we got people in a room, you're it's absolutely safe. right. Yeah. Initially, when, you know, they understood that they were going to have to do something, not just listen, there yeah. was a lot of leaning back and folding arms yeah, and crossing yeah. legs. Yeah. But once... The thing with design thinking is once you push through that mm. initial hurdle, people get really into it and right. suddenly there's a hum in the room and people wow. are working together and we had lawyers at tables from different practice groups sharing ideas mm. and it was fantastic. So what do you think, and I was thinking about this as you, as you were just telling that story, what do you think is the, or what could be the aha moment that firms might experience, right? Because there, there has to be that threshold that if you are getting 80 or even if you get, you know, five or 10 partners or any lawyers in the room, what's the one thing that firms should be just aware of, conscious of, that would get them to stay, right? Because there must be that one moment where there is that light bulb moment, oh my God, this could be actually useful for my practice or the firm. I think one key is, even though part of design thinking is defining the problem, mm -hmm. you come at the session initially with an overarching problem that okay. you want to solve. And it has to be one that people care about. Right. And if it's something that resonates with them, mm. you know, yes, I experience this on a daily basis and yeah. I would like to see a solution. Sure. They're more ready to sit and stay and listen. Mm. That, that's one. And number two, for me, the ideate phase is always fascinating because mm. after people go through that, the number of ideas that you have in the room. Yeah. It's phenomenal. And I think everyone who participates, if they if they stay to the point where you get to the ideate stage, yeah. they will realize that they're generating ideas they would never, really? ever otherwise have come up with. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. And, and I mean, you mentioned about the ideate phase before, and it's kind of designed almost to extract more from people. Right. What are some of the ways that, that that happens? Is it because you restrict the time? Are you removing sort of, the, there's no judgment in this room, you know, it's a safe circle, whatever. You know, probably don't use those words with lawyers, but how does that I happen? do use those words. Okay, excellent. <laughs> I think it works with your charming personality. <laughs> it is, it's exactly that. You put them under time pressure. Yeah. Tremendous time pressure. Yeah. And you make sure that everyone knows that there aren't, there's no judgment yeah. in this room. And usually for the ID8 phase, the first part of it, Hmm. is personal. Right. So you, you can come up with many ideas, but you don't have to share all of those with your next right. door neighbor. And that helps. <laughs> yeah, because I can imagine, you know, if you're past that point, and 
maybe I'm wrong about this. I don't think I am. I think the empathy part probably is the hardest thing that will come to a lot of lawyers. And most people, actually, I think it's difficult to put yourself because you're so business focused a lot of the times. And unless you are dealing with human to human problems, so to speak, it's hard to look behind. Okay, well, you're looking to buy this company. Let's, you know, focus on the people involved or whatever it might be. Right. But I suppose once you push past that, that the idea step must be quite difficult because you're kind of making yourself a little bit vulnerable coming up with these things which probably aren't that bad but in the culture they're operating within probably is the extreme end of that right you're going away from the business aspects of it to the more personal aspect but uh, it's so interesting you said that because don't it's hugely ironic yeah this is a client services industry. Mm. Yeah. I mean, if we are not doing the thing that is empathizing with our clients, mm. what are we doing? How do we yeah. expect to be yeah. solving their problems yeah. for them? And it was really interesting during that phase when we had lawyers in a room, people starting to think about people they work with on the other end of the telephone. Yeah. And what pressures they are under sure. in their organization. You know, if it's a more junior in-house counsel, you know, what does their general counsel expect yeah. of them? If it's a GC, <laughs> what is the business expecting of yeah. them? And and how do they need to report? And how does what we are providing to them actually feed into mm. what they're expected to give to the business? And if it's the business directly, yeah. you know, a whole other set of things. I mean, that's exactly what lawyers should be thinking about. Yeah. And you're right. I think that often we forget that. And I think it's just one of those things, right? When the more experienced you become at doing something, and it's not even when you're dealing with just clients, if you are working with opposing counsel and... You know, if you're a senior associate who's been doing something for five years, seven years, eight years, I think it is easy to get lost in just remembering when you're working with that, you know, fresh first year associate, what it was like when you were there, right? right. Because everyone was there. And of course, there's technology and things have changed and all the other factors. But I think the ultimate pressures are still the same. Yeah. And that's the same thing, as you said, you know, if you're working with a junior GC, they're probably experiencing the same kinds of pressure from the GC as you are from the super supervising partner right right so i think it is important to just have people realize that for themselves and it's a hard thing to do and what you just said is interesting too because it immediately makes me think there was there's opportunity to do this as well around internal process yeah. problems for lawyers mm. and if you get partners thinking about how are our associates yeah. feeling yeah and how can we yeah. improve the way that we streamline our work processes in such a way yeah. that doesn't make them feel like, you know, they want to thump their head against <laughs> the desk. Yeah. You know? And I, I think that's, that's so important right now because, you know, we hear more and more about not just firms wanting to attract the top talent because it's always been the case, but also the, I suppose the way that way of working for lawyers where they want a shift in lifestyle to some degree, right? No one wants to just go to a firm earning X hundred thousand dollars or whatever currency you're working in a year. You want to go there and be able to still enjoy your life. Right. Right. Because that's part of it. You want to be able to go to work, be proud of what you do and still have some sort of a social life. And of course there's, you know, checks and balances and there's compromises. But and it's becoming more important for firms to focus on retaining the talent. Because I think I read a study, and please no one quote me on this, that it takes about five years for a firm to get a return on the investment they get from the associates, right? And you want to be able to have these associates 
not so overworked that at the end of the five years they're like okay I'm done I'm going to another firm so I can you know go and work nine to five or whatever their dream might be yeah okay so I mean getting more towards a bit of the close now but what, what do you think are some of the key things so you mentioned the word workshop a couple of times so is that kind of is that the, the process of doing this going through the the motions of you know design thinking yeah it really has to be a chunk of time okay so unlike a number of other things you know it can't just be a 40 minute seminar right. i don't think you can understand design thinking fully until you've actually you know gotten your hands dirty and done it so (laughs) sure so i think you have to do it that way so that that does mean that you need a commitment from people i think i have done versions of it in 90 minutes okay i think that's as short as you could go okay what what's the usual i mean you said the session that you ran was two hours previously is that kind of the average amount of time or do you think you know a half day of four hours or something is more akin to what is it one of those things that if you spend a whole day, you'll get a lot more out of it, you know, versus 90 minutes? Definitely. Yeah. And a lot of design thinking proponents would say you need a day. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people spend the morning mm. examining the problem and doing right. the empathy bit before they even, you know, go into ideation. <laughs> right. Unfortunately, the reality <laughs> is we're under time pressure in law firms and very few people will give that amount yeah. of time. And I do think you can get a lot out of a 90-minute session or a two-hour yeah. session, but you do need to have that amount of time. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, that makes so much sense. So what are some of the, assuming you're speaking to firms that have now some idea about what design thinking is and they're thinking about planning their first workshop or you know, tackling their first problem or set of problems, what do you think are some of the tips you or some of the advice you might share with them? I would, first of all, say start slow. Yeah. Maybe don't start with your lawyers. Yeah. Get a few people in the room who you know are going to be a little bit more open to it, but mm. invite some of your key people so that they yeah. can see the value and utility of it and get behind the initiative. Think of hiring a consultant or an expert facilitator initially. Yeah. You can continue doing that every time you do this, but you can also get to a point where you're running your own workshops. But for the first one, you should get somebody in to do it. Okay. Then I would say, make sure it's a problem that people really want to solve. Yeah. So that the attendance... Is How do you encourage that aspect of it? Because I think that's also a potential pitfall as I'm thinking through this, where people might just come up with a surface level problem. Yeah, we want to solve that, right? How do you get them to dig a little bit deeper and, you know, sort of peel the skins of the onion, to use analogy, to get to the real meat of it? So, I mean, before you promote the workshop, you would come up with a problem that you know affects people in your firm. Mm. So if you're trying to solve you know, a matter management problem right. or for, you know, as I said, if we did this cross-functional project, yeah. I think most firms, when you're trying to, and not just firms, companies generally, yeah. when you're trying to get multiple departments to work together, mm. communication can be a problem, that sort yeah. of thing. You will know what overarching problems affect yeah. certain people in your firm. Pick yeah. one of those. And it generally should be phrased how can we better do X, Y, Z, something like that. So it's open-ended. And then during the define stage, they refine that problem in a way that makes it relevant to the individual that they 
did the ex- empathy exercise. Right, right. So that's how the defined stage still becomes relevant. Yeah. Okay. And I mean, so you've been doing this for three years now, design thinking yeah. element. So what do you think, what are some of the key takeaways for you personally that you've experienced as, you know, how did this affect you? I just, for me, I think it's easy to become jaded in this sort of a role where you think I keep bringing solutions to my lawyers and they're not grateful (laughs) (laughs) or they're genuinely, they don't want, you know, adoption is always very difficult to engage them is difficult. And so I think people can become quite jaded over the years working with lawyers. And for me, design thinking is interesting and exciting because it provides a way of encouraging lawyers to understand Mm. what we're trying to do and how it genuinely helps them and other people like like clients, for example. And so I do think that it is something that enables you to promote this culture of innovation internally in law firms. And that for me is the first step towards other changes like introducing technology Mm. and process improvement on a number of different levels. Okay. I mean, you've spoken about this quite a lot. Is there anything else that you would mention that I haven't asked you yet? If not, that's okay. (laughs) No, I probably would reiterate just the fact that, well, two things, maybe one, because people do have these inhibitions, natural barriers, and and I think people of the lawyer personality, the stereotypical lawyer Mm. personality type, especially are a little bit reluctant to go into the creative space. Yeah. The nice thing about design thinking is that it does break down those barriers and open up your inhibition and it allows you to tap into the creative good stuff that is there. And lawyers, they, you know, they do have big brains. We want to tap into that stuff. So it allows you to access that. Mm. And then the second thing I would reiterate is the value proposition that you actually take something away from it and implement the change at yeah. the firm, even if it's quite small. Yeah. But do it in such a way that people recognize that it is a change yeah. and that it is a direct result of what they have been a part of. Yeah. And I really like the the example that you gave where you picked up the pieces of paper and you sort of looked through them to get the ideas because I think sometimes, especially when you may not be always lawyers, as you said, you know, when you're working on your minimal viable product, so to speak, right? You you might have a group and some people may be shy and some people might be a bit more introverted and to bring that out, they may just write really good ideas down. Right. So I think that could be such a good exercise. And yeah, I 100% agree. I think there's so much value in just if you are spending all of this time and effort and energy in having a little bit of fanfare to say, hey, we did X. As a result of that, right, you got to draw the correlation there. We came out with this and let's try it. And this is what happened. You know, that's probably the next step after that. You know, we did this. This is how we implemented it. And these are the results. Because that would probably, as a firm, I imagine, help you do this more frequently and maybe get lawyer buy-in afterwards, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, Yeah, that was really, that was amazing, actually. So thank you so much for going through all of that detail. Thanks again for coming. That was wonderful. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Fringe Legal Podcast. Before you go, I have a huge favor to ask you. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. It'll take less than a minute and really helps others find the podcast. Meanwhile, you can find the show notes and resources from the episode on our website at podcast.fringelegal.com. That's podcast.fringelegal.com. See you next time.